Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. This is a Sunday of unusual happenings. Um, I don't know that it's happened before, except maybe in the first service, where there's only one elder represented here today. I'm the only one here, uh, so I can do whatever I want to do. Um, just kidding. Uh, all the other guys are actually either, thank you very much, Zach, either on their way to Indianapolis or in Indianapolis. We are going to a conference this week, uh, Monday through Wednesday, the Gospel Coalition. Very much looking forward to that. It's an opportunity we've been waiting for, and uh, it's a great opportunity. I just want to, since they're not here, I can kind of do this. You have five fully qualified pastors who love and shepherd your souls. This is not a light thing. Five qualified men who have given of their time day in, day out. And I can say because they're not here, I know that they spend hour after hour during every week pre praying for you and then spending time with you and talking about how we best shepherd and love this flock because they love Jesus Christ, number one, and they love their neighbor as themselves. So remember them. Uh, you, I've heard many comments and thanks to me, and I, I appreciate that. Make sure that you let them know that you love and appreciate them. They are just as much shepherds of this flock and leading in many ways. So I'll get that out of the way. The second thing is, I don't know if I've ever, ever been able to get up here before 11.30. So the amazing part is we started at 11.01. Jordan's not running it. So then, uh, <laughs> and, and then we were able to get this thing on the, sh on the, on the show on the road. Um, the, the last thing that makes it a little bit different today is that we are normally exegetically preaching through the text. We just finished Joshua 6 last week. We are going to take a little bit of a break and do an excursus in the book of Joshua on the Canaanite conquest and what that meant. Now, it's different because normally we'd take it right through the text and work from one section to the next section to the next section. But we realize today that we're in the midst of an area where we're seeing mass execution. And we have to figure out how that's okay. So let me start with this quote. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Unquote. Richard Dawkins. In his book, The God Delusion, Dawkins looks at the whole Bible and says all these things about our God, Yahweh. He concludes that this God is a pernicious delusion, that those who believe him and that he is good and holy have not read seriously the Old Testament and all the things are coming out, the mass destruction that Yahweh commands. The mass executions of innocent people, the slaughter of men, women, and children, the battle of Jericho, and all the conquest killings. It is no secret that we are in one of the most troubling sections of Scripture. And it's, only, uh, it's, it's not only atheists like Dawkins who question exactly what's going on in the conquest. Christians read the account and are sickened by the bloodshed. If we take it seriously, we're sickened by the bloodshed. They rightly read that this was a time of mass destruction against the image of God, against people, against old, young, all of it in between. I mean, wasn't it Jesus who told Peter, Peter, put away your sword after he lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest? Wasn't he the one that said to do that? And he said, put away your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. How could it be that Jesus, the advocate for peace, for nonviolence, for truth, for grace, for mercy, the one that said, turn the other cheek, is the same God who commanded the Canaanite slaughter, conquest and killing every breathing thing in Jericho? I ask that you would pray for me today. This is not going to be a fun sermon, just letting you know. There's not a lot of getting around it. We have to come face to face with the brutality that we see in front of us with what actually happened. 
our task is to take a little break from the main storyline of Joshua and try to understand some of the answers or, or questions that we have about this text, this text as we've been immersed in this conquest, this bloody, total conquest. My defense today isn't to Richard Dawkins, not to the, to the unbelieving world. There's plenty of good apologetics for them. My defense does not lie there. The truth is Richard Dawkins does believe in God, even though he says he's an atheist. He just hates him. That's the real problem. But I'll tell you this, as you sit here today, what I want to do is try to help us take a good look at our Lord in all his holiness, his purity, and his glory, and help us understand why this is what he says he's doing. How can a God who's good and just and kind and merciful be one that commands the slaughter of possibly hundreds of thousands of people at once. Allow me to read a passage before we start. I believe this will plant us squarely on the foundation of the character of God, for this is where we must begin, and we must go back and end here. Let me read Exodus 34, 6, and 7. We've read it before. Listen, then I'll pray. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let's pray together. God, we ask your work to be done. I ask that you would allow me to speak the truth in love, that I would not back down from the truth, but rather speak the truth in love, pointing all glory to Jesus Christ, the Lord of all history. May we see you for who you are, a holy God who is full of love and steadfast love to thousands, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God, I ask your special work, both in my own heart to believe this text, but then also everyone who sits here together and everyone who will listen to the, the, the audio afterwards, that we remember, God, that you are king and that you are always right. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. How can a merciful God kill all the inhabitants of Canaan? How can the God of grace and truth command Canaanite extermination? The commands that we find in Joshua really don't surprise us. If we've been reading along in the Pentateuch, we kind of knew this was coming. They're consistent with the way that the nation is expecting to have to do this when they reach the promised land. God spoke through Moses in Deuteronomy and told them this is exactly what they were going to have to do, to destroy the people in the land that they were promised. Deuteronomy 7.1, listen to this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Canaanites, and then he lists other nations as well, more numerous and mighty than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, get this, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. The Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Skipping down, you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. Consider Deuteronomy 20. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. It comes as no surprise to us when we get to Joshua what they're supposed to do. They've already been commanded this. The people know what's coming. What we see in Joshua is obedience to the commands of God given through Moses to destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan. So we aren't posing this question to Joshua or the people or the warriors who did this. We're not even posing it to, to De Deuteronomy writer Moses. Let's be real honest about who we're questioning. We are asking God this question. It is he who commanded this. And so we have to come face to face. We're not talking about a secondary agent we're talking about God himself that has done this. That's who we're questioning. How can you, Lord God, kill all the inhabitants of Canaan? It seems so barbaric to us. It seems harsh. It seems bloody and, 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 and violent and wrong, right? I mean, it seems that way to us. How can you who have shown us mercy and the nonviolence and the perfect revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, 
How can Jesus yet be the same God who commanded this? The slaying of all of the land of Canaan. So let's understand who we're talking to. We're questioning God. But before we get to why, I want us to make sure we actually understand what first. What I mean by that is this. We can start making arguments right now. Why in the world would God do this? Why would he allow this to happen? I want us to make sure that the what is clarified first. What is Joshua saying is happening here? When we need to do this, this is why. If we're not clear about what happened and we jump to the why question, we are going to be so disturbed by what is going on, we are going to start making excuses and twisting what we think what happened back here because we're not comfortable with it. And so what we have to do is understand what the text is presenting to us first. Then it's okay to ask the why question. The problem is we're going to have this tendency to make the text say what we want it to say. It's totally normal and sinful. It's what we do. Because we want it to be palpable. We want it to be comfortable. We want it to be on our terms. We can't do that. That's, that's not right. We have to take him for his word. So before we get there, let's think about this. The problem is that many people, including us, have such a hard time with a just God who would destroy all of these people that they start making different exceptions and possibilities what could be happening, what's happening behind the text that we don't know about. Both Christians and non-Christians alike are guilty of hurling different arguments back and forth about what actually happened. Maybe we don't really know. I mean, some claim that the story is just fiction. You know, like, there are parts of it's right, but this, this never actually happened. It doesn't line up with the character of God that we see over and over again throughout the Scriptures. So this, this part is fiction. You know, it's just a story to explain to us how we got into the land of Canaan. Or like Dawkins, there are people who think that the whole thing is fiction. Every part of the Bible is fiction. It's not true. It can't be true. But Dawkins betrays himself with all this struggle and putting all this moral problems on this God where he starts to reveal to us that he actually does believe he just hates God. Some say that they believe that this is total fiction. Some say that this is hyperbole, or what I mean by that is exaggeration, a type of writing that makes it look bigger and more pronounced and makes sure that we understand that they totally beat the Canaanites. Like they're going to use this flowery language to show that we killed these guys, like you would say in a basketball game. Some will say then that this is hyperbole. Some will also say that this is not mass destruction, but rather it's a displacement of the peoples, a moving them out of the land. And certainly it took all this conquering and military killing, but we're not talking about total extermination. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about displacement. Someone say that this is straight up genocide. The God's people were commanded to be rid, rid the world of this sinful, rebellious bloodline. The problem was the specific nationality. God wanted them dead, them exterminated. So we've got all kinds of thoughts about what's going on here from the outside, even in our own hearts. But we need to take the text seriously as Moses has presented it to us, and as Joshua has too. There are numerous incidences throughout the book of Joshua where we find that Joshua has engaged in this type of warfare. What we just looked at in, at Jericho, this idea of harem, this idea of devoted to destruction to the Lord warfare, is littered throughout the entire book of Joshua. We see it in the city of Jericho. We see it in the city of Ai. We see it in the northern and the southern conquests. Everywhere, over and over, we're going to see this phrase pop up, devoted the city to destruction. And at Jericho, if you remember, he expanded on that to help us understand what he meant. Not just the men, both men and women, young and old. And if you remember, at Jericho, he went even further than that. Basically, everything that breathes, all the beasts, all the livestock. We don't see this type of warfare carried out in the lands that are outside the promised land. We see this specifically right here. In Deuteronomy 21 to 15, we see how Israel is to fight against nations who are not inside the inherited land. They are to kill those and to push them back and push their borders back, but not to treat them like this, devote every person to destruction. They're certainly supposed to be careful about syncretism, but not the same way as this promised land. This is a special warfare that Yahweh has set on the Amorites. How do we know that? All the way back to Genesis 15, 16, where his wrath was being stored up against them until it was complete. And here we are. Now, I've worked through this over and over and over again, textually, both back in Hebrew, and try to understand every part of it. 
Well, I'll tell you right now, it's very hard to make this do anything else than what it actually is. It's very hard to call this hyperbole. It's very hard to say that this just didn't happen. Uh, the text tells us, we're, we're just going to throw this part of the scriptures out. I mean, what's actually going on here? What really happened? Let me reduce it down to a couple statements. What's going on here is divine judgment, and we're not going to like this, in a cleansing of the land from sin. For his chosen people, his holy people, the priests, the nation of priests, the ones who are to be a blessing for all nations by their identity in him, not by their blood, but by being known by Yahweh and following him. These events then are no fiction. We believe the Bible is true. It's not any partial fiction. It's not like we can just throw this part out. Although some of the, you know, we, just, we don't think that just some of the parts are true and some are not. No, no, we take every bit as God breathed. Your view of inspiration has to hold true here. You can't throw it out. This is not merely hyperbole, like I said. We definitely see hyperbole used in scriptures. It's on purpose. Yes, we see that, but the nature of these passages don't give us any sort of hint that this is hyperbole. They don't tell us that. And it's right then to see this as normative and that we understand this pretty straightforwardly. This is not the displacement of people. It's not as though they're just pushing their borders out so they, so they get outside of their region. The Bible shows that that theory doesn't hold water because every one of those people were devoted to destruction. Again, any of these theories don't take seriously what the Word of God says. So we have to come to it and say this is what he's doing. One more thing, this is not straight-up genocide. We know, both from Leviticus and we know, we just studied in James, our God is not partial. This was not based on their skin color or based on their bloodline or their DNA. The Bible shows us he's not partial. His actions against the Canaanites is not because of their skin color or nationality. What would we do with Rahab? What would we do with the, the Gibeonites? As he saves these, what are we to do with that? This is not genocide. No, there's no way to explain away what has happened in these passages. The Lord is commanding his people to enact total destruction of the inhabitants of Canaan. That means the old all the way down to the newborns. Everyone. These are harsh truths. Like I said, I, I, I understand the weight of this. And this is truly disturbing. If you really think this through, it's awful. Death and destruction are effects of sin, and as such, they are terrible. We don't back away from that. If we saw a nation today that storm into another nation, right, and, and, you know, in their territory, and they mowed every person down, young and old, we would rightly be horrified. We would call it what it is. The indiscriminate killing of innocent people is wicked. And we would rightly call those involved in this, such acts, to justice and to face capital punishment. They are murderers. But it seems like it's okay for God to do it. It's, uh, it's time for us to wrestle with this question. We understand what is going on. You have to come to grips with why. If this is true, what are we supposed to do with this? Why is this true? Why would God, who is merciful and kind and gracious, ever command total destruction for a whole people group? What answers, then, does the text give us? We start here on purpose. If you start thinking your own head and try to come up with your own reasons why this happened, I promise it will lead you to a very bad place that you do not want to be. You are going to bend it to make it fit your thoughts on God. So I'm telling us we must start with the text first. We must see what it says to us first. We'll first start with what Moses said. And then we'll broaden a little bit out to help us understand the character of God. For when we think about the character of God, we will understand judgment. We have to look at these things first. First, Moses. What does he have to say about this? Moses, over several passages, gives us two reasons why the people of Canaan must be devoted to destruction. Number one, it is divine judgment on their abominable acts. Their sin is disgusting rebellion against a holy and righteous God, and they are primed for destruction. They are to be judged. The Canaanites were people known for their polytheism. In other words, there are many, many gods. Their worship of all kinds of different gods. 
to the point that nothing was actually wrong. Because if one God wasn't okay with it, you could find another God that was okay with it. Nothing was unnatural because, again, if, even if you didn't have a God yet for it, one would be created, and then you'd worship that God. As a whole, they are a polytheistic culture, one in which there is no wrongdoing. So the idea of a one God is preposterous to them and almost disgusting. Like, how can anyone say that there's only one? Like, we all get along here. There's a lot of toleration in this, in this one thing. Each God was worshipped in their own unique way, but the overriding theme of worship was sexual expression. You can imagine if nothing is off limits and there's nothing unnatural, then sexual sins become numerous, prolific, widespread, and debauched. The Canaanites, this is other history, not even just from the scriptures, the Canaanites were known for fornication, for adultery, for homosexuality, for pederasty, which is grown men having intercourse with young boys, for bestiality, and every other kind of sexual perversion that one can think of. On top of that, the practice of offering their infants and young children up to the age of four years old would be offered on the altars to the fire gods and consumed as a sacrifice. In Deuteronomy 9, 5, in Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 18, the abominable practices of the Canaanites, it is shown over and over again that this is leading to divine righteous judgment, that it's not okay, that these must have an answer. It is clear that God is judging Canaan. By divine judgment, excuse me, he is talking about the actual outpouring of his wrath on these people. But divine judgment is not the only reason. It's right and it would be enough. But it's not the only reason for Canaanite destruction. The people were so wicked that God knew he must remove them completely from the land or else it would mean disaster for his people who were to come into that land, Yahweh's land, the one that was to be dominated by one Lord one person to worship and that alone. He knew that they had wandering hearts. He knew that the sin must be removed from that land. So we understand divine judgment isn't only for that. Number two, the second reason Moses gives for Canaanite destruction is that Yahweh was cleansing the land from abominable peoples and abominable practices so that his people would be those who they were supposed to be, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart to look different than every other culture who worshiped multiple gods. They would be those who had not have one stitch of idolatry in their midst. There's no room for other gods. Think about the Ten Commandments for a moment. The first three are all about the uniqueness and oneness of this God. No other graven images, no other God before you. Even be careful about his name that you say only his name and don't say it lightly. The whole thing, how about Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema, the thing that Jesus will go back later on and say, this is the greatest commandment. How does it start? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on to say, you should love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. The reason this is so important then is to clear this polytheism away that not one stitch of idolatry is okay. There could be no rival gods in the promised land and the land where God's people lived under his divine reign. There could not be peoples who would be devoted to other gods. There could be nothing, not one stitch of idolatry among God's people. And thus, the Lord explains that he is removing the wicked from the land in which the holy are to live and to dwell and to be his people. Listen to Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18. But in the cities of these people, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. And then he names all the Canaanites. As the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Consider Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, and etc., then you must devote them to complete destruction. Listen to this. You shall not intermarry with them, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. 
The Lord is removing the sin, the idolatry, those things which causes people's heart to stumble and to go away and turn to idols. Listen to Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. And then he lists them. For, for, someone, for whoever does these things is abominable to the Lord. And because these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. These things will become death to you. Do you realize that these things will make you not my people? Hosea talks about this. He calls one son my pe- not my people. Reminding those that have practiced this way have now, not because of their blood, they may still be Jewish, but they are not gods. Now they are against God. And what's at the root of this problem is actually the sin. These things will become death. They must be removed and the land must be cleansed. It goes even further than that than just the people. Think about the geographic locations. Listen to Deuteronomy 12 too. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and on every green tree, you shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Remember we talked about this with, I mean, it sounds like it's over the top. Kill everybody, kill everything, knock down every place, bring it to rubble. Kind of like when we saw Joshua pronounce this curse on the city. We're like, whoa, this is over the top, destruction aimed at bringing this back to your worship of Yahweh alone. He destroyed all these places so that his country, God's country, there would only be one God to worship. Not one hint that would cause them to think, hey, maybe I should try out these abominable practices. Because you and I know our own hearts, our own struggle, our own easily wandering away from our God. All their gods had to be destroyed and followed, excuse me, and their followers eliminated. When we look at the Pentateuch, these first five books of Moses, that the Lord brought destruction on the peoples for two reasons. Number one, he was bringing divine judgment on sin. But number two, he was cleansing the land of idolatry. Extremely important. These are reasons enough. We could pack up and say, that's enough. We get it. Uh, but there's more to consider here. You and I may hear Moses' reasons, and we're like, okay, those are the reasons. We get it. I guess we'll just obey but we're kind of not satisfied. We're still wondering, yeah, but why would God do it? Like, why would those things be so important? We get it that God is going to enact this judgment and demand singular worship with the slaughter of so many people. Like, it just doesn't seem like it is right for him to do that. Is that really the right thing to do? We would not do these things to innocent people. How can God do these things to innocent people? We need to look at the character and nature of God himself and point out a few things. First, and we'll get back to that that innocent idea later. First, God is the sovereign Lord of all and he owns everything. There's nothing in this universe that God does not own or that he created for his own glory. God does not need you and me to prove him right. God doesn't need to run his ideas by us as though they need some sort of human approval to do what he wants to do. He doesn't have to run it through us to interact the way he decides to do in his creation. Who made you? Who owns you? Who brought the sun up this morning? Or if you saw the beautiful moon last night? Who's the one that brings rain on the just and the unjust? Who decides what to do with all these wicked sinners who hate their maker? In Jeremiah 45, we find a passage that sums this idea up in one verse. Listen to this as he says in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built up, I am breaking down. And what I have planted, I am plucking it up. That is the whole land. Who has the right to break down whole nations? The one who first built them. Who has the right to pluck nations up by the roots? the one that first made them and planted them there. He is the creator of God. We must come face to face then with the reality that we are not God. We have no right to that claim. We have no right then to play some sort of God and like that we know God's what his thoughts ought to be. 
The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 9.20. Remember this. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, hey, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Who are you to question God? It is he who decides to reveal himself however he sees fit. Do you realize that God owns all the clay? Each one, each vessel. God decides what he will do with it. Job has the same experience when he is asking, why God? Do you remember what God answers at the end of Job? One of my favorite, there's lots of things he says that are amazing. Simple one in Job 38 though, God says to him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? You know the creation account? Where were you? Were you there? Really? Who made you, Job? Who's the one that formed you in your mother's womb? Whenever questions like this get asked of God, the answer consistently comes back from God. You are a creature. I am the creator. I will always do what is right no matter what you think about it. This is who God is. He doesn't even have to give us a reason past this, but he does. This would be enough. We could walk away and be like, okay, he's the creator. He's the potter. I'm the clay. Whatever he decides to do is right, and I'll just be okay with that. It would be a reason enough to do this, but we must not walk away from this discussion without centering it on the character of a righteous, holy, and just God. For us to walk away and some sort of, you know, throw our hands up in a fog of like pseudo-belief and mild confusion that, well, I guess it's God's prerogative. He can do what he wants to do. That, that's partially good, but we're not catching the rest of Scripture. We're not seeing him for who he truly is. And we don't know the character of God if we just say whatever happens, happens. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the crux of the whole Canaanite conquest. The question we're asking ourselves is, why does God kill people? It was not God's design to kill people. It didn't surprise him, but death is not an invention of God. It is a divine consequence to that which hates him. We're talking about sin and rebellion. In other words, God must judge rebellion and sin because it is that which hurls itself against him in all of his perfections, all of his beauty, all of the joy, and says to itself, nah, I don't want that. I don't want any of that. First, we saw that God owns everything, but second, we see that his actions are based on his holiness and justice. Sin is anything that says, nah, God, I will, I will not be yours. It is the true delusion that somehow it's okay for us to say to the potter, I'm good, I can do whatever I want to do. It's the attitude that says, I don't want ultimate joy in you, I want to try to make it happen with myself. That is sin, that is rebellion, it's also foolishness. It says, I don't really want to listen to you. You are not life, you are not love, you are not good, you are not great, you are not glorious, you are not powerful, you are not perfect. I am not yours. I do what I want to do. Do you see the affront to the perfect character of God when that which he made and fashioned out of dust says that to him? I choose to worship who I want to. Sin, then, is rebellious and cosmic treason against the being of all beings, the glorious creator and sovereign Lord of all. And because he is just, he will not allow those things which are sinful, unrighteous, and holy to triumph over him. He cannot be himself and let himself lose in any of these areas. He will not allow sin to triumph. It cannot. He will crush it. Make no mistake, God will answer all sin for all of time, from the beginning until the end. Listen to Ecclesiastes 12, 14. There's no escape. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We must start with this basic truth then. Sin against God must be punished by death. Paul summed it up for us that, several times as well that way. 
But what you kind of want to do is like the slap on the wrist, like, hey, you need to get better. You just need to try to do better. But remember, but the slapping of the hand by his creation that's rebellious doesn't take seriously the severity of our sin and the absolute purity and holiness of our God. In and of itself, not even knowing him, he's still that God. If we could only understand the fiery, all-consuming holiness of God, we might begin to understand the need for judgment of sin. In Isaiah 6, we see this really interesting little caption, this vision. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. It's a whole scene of holiness surrounded by angels. His train is filling the whole temple up. And the angels standing around, guess what they're doing? They're covering their faces They're covering their feet, and before him they crouch, and all they can say is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. How does Isaiah respond? He said, woe is me. I am lost, I am of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is no one like this God. Absolute purity and holiness. To betray the Holy One can have no other consequence but death. We know from the rest of Scripture that all men, every single one of us in all of history have sinned and pitted themselves against this God. And because of Adam's rebellion and our choice, we are under divine judgment. There is no way for us to save ourselves from destruction. Don't think that you were born neutral. You don't take the Scripture seriously if that's true. You and I are 100% completely depraved, unable unable to somehow satisfy the wrath of God since we have affronted his holiness. Thus, when we see the Israelites claim the lives of men, women, and children, we must say God is right. We have to. There's no other way to do this. These are ones who have stored up God's wrath for generations full of disobedience and rebellion. And may I go back to Paul for a moment here in the conclusion from Romans 9. I didn't read the rest of it. I'm going to read it now. He reminds us that God, the one that's the molder, can make vessels for honor and for dishonor. But then he says this in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? That's us. He is putting these things together, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Do you realize that when he shows us destruction of sinners, that he is divinely judging these people for their sin and affront to him, that he is showing himself to be true, holy, just, and righteous? From this instance, we understand the character of God and his complete holiness. Do you realize that God shows us through this event that we rightly deserve exactly what the Canaanites got? Do you realize that in the mirror of the nations being rightly destroyed, think about this as a mirror, we see the immense grace and mercy given to us in Jesus Christ? That God would save sinners? What, you think you are somehow better than the Canaanites? That you do not deserve the same thing? The same end? Listen, this is not the first or the last time that God has shown his divine judgment. Let's go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. How did he handle sin there? If you remember, indiscriminate killing of men, women, and children. It just happened to be through sulfur and fire that fell down from heaven. What about the world in Noah's day? Remember this, that there's a worldwide flood. How did he handle this? The, 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 the problems and the sin and the rebellion of all the people of the world? He floods the entire globe and kills them, destroying men, women, children. You see a pattern here? Saving it through one man uh, and, and his family. What about the exile? Here we go. You think it's genocidal? What about the exile? Have you ever read the prophets? Do you know what's going on post-kings and what in the world is going on? All the debauchery that Israel and Judah have put themselves into? 
again, have you ever read Lamentations to see how terrible it has become? The judgment that God has doled out on his people? That these people have now canonized themselves by doing all the abominable acts that those who formerly lived in the land participated in? God is not genocidal. There's no partiality. God's people end up being just like the Canaanites and they undergo divine judgment, the slaughter of men, women, and children. Why? You know why. Because they have sinned against the great God of the universe. God is not partial. His judgment is against sin, not people groups, not people who have a certain color skin. It is against sin. Now let's fast forward. What will happen at the end of days? I would love to read Revelation 19, 11 through 21 for you. You need to go read it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to bring out some highlights because you need to understand how glorious and horrific this site is. This is what's going to happen. There will be a day when Jesus comes on a white horse with his robe dipped in blood, having a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, and with it he will strike down the nations. The story is gruesome and bloody, and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is no small thing. This is what's going to happen. There will be a day when God will judge all men. And I may say this, we will be glad that our Lord does so, that the justice of God reigns and wickedness will finally be answered. Remember that we have no sense of justice other than that which is based on the character of God. If we don't have God, you can do whatever you want to people. All kinds of wickedness. We are in a time period of amazing common grace that God will withhold those things. What we are experiencing in the conquest is a small piece of God's divine judgment against sin. It's not new. We've seen it before and we will see it again. It's just very personal. He's used natural disasters. He's used supernatural disasters. He's used miraculous judgment. In the future, he will do it himself. But this time, here in Joshua, he uses his people to enact rightful divine judgment, and it bothers us. But we must say that they are agents of his divine will. And this is God who is always right in all of his actions. Now, we need to ask ourselves one more question. If this is all true, I've given you good reasons why the Bible has told us why he has done this, and we agree on them. We say, yeah, that's what the text says. We will believe this. Why does this bother us still? I think there are a couple reasons. I think many of them are right. We misunderstand God's holiness. We misunderstand judgment. We misunderstand and, and, and understand as, this as violence, as hatred, as sinful action. The other thing that bothers us so much is that we know a God of love. And we claim him to be the God of love and mercy, which he is. How do these things work together? But I'll say this as well. This morning I want to bring one aspect to the forefront. I think that we struggle so much with this concept because we live in a land where our neighbors look just like the Canaanites. Let's talk about our nation alone for a minute, not including the whole world. It doesn't take too much observation to see the normalization of pornography, of adultery, homosexuality. They've all come to be normal in the United States. Yeah, but I mean, not bestiality and not like child sacrifice. We don't do any of that stuff, right? Let me give you a 2009, 10 years ago statistic that animal pornography and every wicked thing is viewed 46,000 times per day in the United States alone. That's back in 2009. You don't think this is a problem. I'm telling you, this is happening in our midst. Child sacrifice, though. We, we don't see that happening. We certainly don't see child sacrifice happening on any altars around here. We may not see the children put into flames on the altar, but did you realize, and I know that this is very close to home, did you realize in Southampton Roads alone, for every three babies that are born, one is killed and aborted? Do you realize the toll that has been taken on the altar of convenience, career, or choice? This is happening in our midst. Now praise God for his mercy. I'll get there in a moment. 
But don't be surprised that when I say we're just like Canaan. This is exactly where we're at. The problem is that we don't call this sin just like God calls this sin. We tolerate a great deal of wickedness and we think that this means that there is no need for harsh treatment of sin. We're all about toleration. Everything's okay. Just You choose what you do and just don't bother me. It's okay. You have your God and I have my God. As long as they don't like just overlap too much, we're fine. It's all okay. Especially total destruction. How could you do that? When we come face to face with sin, if we're honest, we often look the other way. We don't like it. We're not going to participate. We just look the other way and just kind of tolerate it. There's another reason, though, for us. It's not just our culture. We also are like the Canaanites. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. The stuff that we struggle with and sin and actively rebel against God in wickedness, where it's all too close to home that they're like that and that they're going to face destruction. We don't want that. We're like, no, no, it's, it's okay. I'm fine. Everyone's going to be okay. No, let's not have any destruction talk. We, we don't want them to do it because we don't want it to happen to us as well. When we think about God, the holy and just God, we are scared. When we see him rightly, we're petrified. Because everything in him, because of his holiness, should pour out his wrath on sin. That's including me and you. Because we know that there is no way, there is absolutely no way for us to save ourselves from destruction. But there is a way for God to save us from destruction. This is why we meet this morning. Do you know that? If I stopped here, you should never come back here. (laughs) But do you realize the reason we meet this morning is not because we could somehow do enough good stuff. You keep on coming to the service, you'll merit enough favor with God and you're going to get there. No, 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 no. Only God could pacify the wrath of God. That's why we call him the just and the justifier. Because what he did is he took it on his own son. And he didn't stay dead, praise God. Brothers and sisters, today's sermon deals with many difficult topics. It does not leave us without hope, though. The reason we join today is because there is hope. There is hope in God alone. We must realize that God does not leave us to destruction. He could, but he doesn't. I mean, because of his great mercy, he has made a way for all of us to be forgiven and freed that those that are his in Christ, that we may be not judged according to what we deserve. We deserve every bit of it. But those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation now. Friend, you may know the wickedness of the Canaanites personally. You may know exactly what I'm talking about. The things that you struggle with day in, day out, or that you just actively participate in. You may squirm and sink when you hear about their sin because you know, like me, that you are just as wicked. And your real problem is your heart. You do a lot of stuff, but the real problem is you're constantly bound up with a heart of wickedness. But may I remind you, remind you of a wicked Gentile prostitute woman who happened to experience the glorious, eye-boggling mercy of Yahweh. A woman who would probably be the epitome of storing up wrath for destruction, and yet God show her mercy. All things we just talked about, guess who probably did all, every single one of them? Rahab. And look who we find in the bloodline of Jesus. Rahab. Whose credit? Whose mercy? Whose love? Whose steadfast love to thousands? not based on her race, not based on her skin color, but on the divine mercy of Yahweh. Look what he has done. Friend, may I tell you, if this is you, if you are a Canaanite today, trust Jesus. He's the only one that can take your sin. You cannot pay for it yourself. You will be destroyed like the Canaanites. Friend, you may know this wickedness, but I have to remind you of her. She is a picture of divine unending mercy to those who do not deserve it. There is hope in Jesus Christ alone. So repent and trust him. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says this, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they'll all be judged. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers, there is no condemnation. There's no destruction to fear for those who are found in Christ. Sister, there is no destruction to fear for those who've made Jesus their king, who love him with their heart, soul, and mind. There's great hope then in the midst of this conquest, in the midst of judgment against sin, we see salvation. It is that God will be true to his character. Do you realize that this is all based back where we started here? Exodus 34. I'm going to read it and then we're going to pray. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise God. Let's pray. God, we have nothing to offer you. And yet you loved us in Jesus. It is a legitimate offer that you say today, obey, trust my son, that you might know reconciliation to the Father. I pray that you would bring those who do not know you and trust you and love you today, that you would bother them, that they would know that your judgment is on them unless they would trust Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would save sinners and that we would in one voice with our head, Jesus Christ, worship you. We thank you, and Lord, we thank you for the hope that is in God alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.